0: It's great to have you all joining us. You know, I uh, woke up my son this morning and I asked him, "Why are you so hard to wake up?" And he said, "Well, don't you remember Newton's first law? A body at rest wants to stay at rest." <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's time to turn it over to someone who's always wide awake when it's time for science. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. <laughs>
1: We're going to talk about some pretty illuminating technology. So prepare to be illuminated. (laughs) But first we have to figure out what in the world this is. Take a look at this. This is a very interesting looking contraption. Can you tell what it is? Maybe a fancy chandelier or something like that or an alien spaceship? Or maybe scientists have finally harvested the magic of the crystal ball. You know, something (laughs) like that. Actually, this is a contraption that collects sunlight. And instead of using the sunlight to, say, make electricity, they redirect that sunlight to an inside room somewhere where they need light. And uh, so we're going to talk about some of the important technologies in order to make this work. The very first thing that we need to talk about is fiber optics. Remember, we already use fiber optics everywhere for our data communications. And the neat thing about fiber is you can send light through the fiber and it will keep going and going and going and going really really far. And if you look at a fiber optic cable you'll see how on the ends when the lights coming out is where it lights up. And all through that fiber there's light coming but it's not coming out of the fiber it's going through the fiber. And as the light goes through it's almost like the insides the inside edges of the fiber are mirrors. And so the light keeps getting reflected inside, and it stays inside that fiber. This is really neat because you can take light, like sunlight, and direct it through the fiber a long distance to where you want to actually show the light. And then the light comes out of the fiber, and you have the light maybe underground, for example, or in a building with no windows. So uh, that's an important piece, to be able to transport the light but there's another really big challenge. How do you get enough light to go down into the fiber? If you point the fiber right at the sun, then all the light from the sun that hits that one little spot gets captured. But if you really wanna have enough light somewhere like that, you need to capture more than that. And that's where the crystal ball comes in. But first, I wanna think about how plants already do this. Have you ever seen how sunflowers grow and they point right at the sun. And then as the sun moves across the sky, they follow the sun. And it's really amazing to think that the sunflower can tell where the sunlight is and point exactly right at it to get the very most light. So this is a really, really neat technology that we can learn from plants. If we could point right at where the sun is, we would get the very most energy. So we could create, for example, a parabolic dish It's just the right shape. So when the sunlight hits it, it all gets focused to one point, and we could capture all that light. But then that whole dish would have to move across the sky to capture all that light. And maybe there's a better way. That's where the crystal ball comes in. (laughs) And uh, this is a ball lens, and that's because it's shaped like a ball, right? (laughs) And you can see how it makes things look upside down. You can see how there's a building behind there, and um, the light coming from the building goes through the ball, and the lens bends the light, and we get the reverse image. And I want to take a look at a diagram that shows how light moves through the ball. You can see the light's coming in on one side, and the ball bends that light, and there's a point on the other side of the ball where that light is focused. All the light coming through gets focused to one point. Now, the really interesting thing is, if the light was coming from the other side, it would be exactly the same, only backwards. Or if you turned the light, or if you turned the ball, then the light would be focused the exact same distance from the edge of the ball, regardless of the direction. And that's what they realized when they were making this light-capturing device. Instead of having a big mirror or a big lens, a big flat lens, that follows the sun we'll have this one ball lens, and we'll have where we collect the light, track the sun. And in other words, the fiber has to be on the opposite side of the sun, so the light that comes through gets focused to that point. Then, they only needed small motors to move the fiber to that little spot where it can collect. All right, so let's see here. I just lost my slides, (laughs) but anyway, I was going to show you this really cool video, (laughs) and it shows how they're able to move and track the sunlight just by moving where that fiber is, and they can use really small motors, but to make it even better, they rigged it up so uh, you put in your GPS coordinates, and the computer knows right where the sun should be at this time, at this location on Earth, and so it points right there to where the sun should be, and then... They have little sensors, light sensors, around the fiber. And so as it detects where the light is, it fine-tunes it. So if it's a little bit off target, then the light sensors get lit up way more than they're supposed to, and it adjusts just a little bit to keep it right on the sun. And then throughout the day, it does little teeny adjustments and keeps moving to keep it perfectly aligned with the sun. That way they get the most light that they can. Now, you're probably wondering, why are they working on this at all, right? And it turns out that in Singapore, where the researchers are, they actually have kind of a shortage on space, (laughs) and they need more roads and more infrastructure. So they're looking into doing more of their infrastructure underground, having roads and railways and walkways that go underground. And that's where something like this might be really, really useful. And they designed it the right size to go on top of a lamppost. So uh, it will be collecting the light from the sun during the day, and then at night, they have a light on there that'll turn on for people outside. And so it'll have two purposes like that. And uh, they say they could make bigger ones and everything, but the idea is to make it really affordable so they can have lots of them and have the light along the way. And uh, I think it, it's, it's pretty neat. There are some issues with focusing light like that where you start to get a lot of temperature. That's something that... Uh, They're gonna have to address if we ever try to make a bigger one, wouldn't it be great to have a giant crystal ball? (laughs) Uh, Probably couldn't tell us the future, but it'd look cool. (laughs) Really awesome. Uh, But uh, that would be able to focus more light because it'd be more surface area, more area for the the light to hit. Uh, But the more light you focus, the hotter it's gonna get, unless you can efficiently get that light into the fiber without creating that that heat point right there. Uh, But it's really, uh, potentially really exciting. And, uh, you know, if they do this for all their projects, then, you know, maybe the crystal ball really is telling us the future. (laughs) That's all the tech we have the time for.
0: Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias.
2: So when you're doing a project, do you do it all the way? Do you just barely get it done? Do you not get it done? (laughs) Some of us put pro in procrastinate. Um, (laughs) What kind of person are you? And you know, that's something that some of us just kind of approach with, well, we'll see what happens. Or do you approach it with you decide how you're going to do it and that you're going to do it all the way? And I'm talking about real things, not like, you know, oh, you're looking confident today. What's up? I took a shower this morning. Yeah, I woke up, I was like, man, I'm going to make today special.
0: <laughs>
2: I'm a go-getter. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big things, big things that are going to take a lot of effort, a lot of hard work and figuring out and not giving up. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about a really amazing um, feat of engineering, and it's something over in the land of France. And we're going to talk about this gentleman here, Gustave. Eiffel. And that last name probably gives it away. Uh, We're talking about the Eiffel Tower. And one of the things about the Eiffel Tower that's really interesting is how old it is. How long it's been since it was built. And to to get into this, we have to start at 1887, when in Paris they were going to hold the World Exhibition Exhibit. Okay. One moment, please. We're just going to say the World Expo. (laughs) Um, But they were going to have this big event and the whole world was going to be looking to France and this was going to be like to show the world how advanced France was and they really wanted to make a big impression. And one of the ideas that the people planning this had was, why don't we make a huge monument tower? A tower bigger than anything else anyone had ever seen. And so they said, we'll do this. We'll have a contest. Somebody give us a proposal, design idea, of a monument tower you want to build. And they got all kinds. They got and they wanted it to be taller than anything. And so one one idea was we will build a granite lighthouse nine hundred feet tall. And it will be symbolizing the light of France to the world. And if they had built a solid granite tower that tall, it probably would have been so heavy it would have just sunk down into the ground over time. (laughs) That's a lot of weight. Another idea was we will build a tower that shoots water from the top so that if there's ever a drought in Paris we can water the gardens and take showers, right? (laughs) (laughs) That idea didn't fly. In fact, it sank. Um, And Eiffel, this designer, he had already made a name for himself. Um, He had already designed, here's a picture of a bridge he designed It was, at the time, the world's largest bridge. He had also helped design the internal structure of a statue that they sent to America, the Statue of Liberty. Um, He designed the inside of it, and he was a very renowned engineer, civil engineer from France. Well, he had a business named after him, and two of his team members had an idea for this monument. And so they came to him with their idea, and they really wanted him to take on this idea because they knew if Mr. Eiffel put a proposal in it would almost certainly win because he was Mr. Eiffel. And they showed it to him and basically they took the bridge design that he had done which like that bridge, it's kind of big on the ends and then it gets skinny they took it, broke it in half and put it together. And if you look at the Eiffel Tower it's actually really familiar to a bridge type structure a very advanced bridge. And so they showed him and they told him about their plan and he wasn't very interested. He was getting ready to retire actually. And then they went to one of uh, the people closer to him and they showed it to him and he made some changes and then he went with them and talked to Eiffel and Eiffel got really excited about it. Um, and then So he took it on and he started designing the tower based on their plans. He made some changes, made it more artistic and when they submitted, they won this this new bid contest. And just to put it in perspective of how tall it is, um, here's a, a diagram with the Statue of Liberty, the Washington Monument, and then the height of this new tower. And that's just amazing to even try and fathom something that tall if you've never seen anything like it. And so he won the bid, but unfortunately he did not win the hearts of many Parisians. Um, they did not like the idea. In fact, you know, if, Paris has all this art and amazing architecture and 300 famous artists all signed a letter and they said in the letter it says we protest with all our strength. <laughs> all our strength that this, this tower and I actually have the tower right here from my wife's desk. Um, uh, but they said this is terrible. It looks so bad. This looks like an unfinished chimney, and they said even in America they wouldn't like this. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, and they said, and it's gonna be that tall. It's gonna frown on Notre Dame and on all of these other buildings. And it's just no, we can't do it. It will destroy Paris, and you know we're here in the future. <laughs> but. They wrote a big letter, and there was a lot of pushback, and uh, Mr. Eiffel said, no, it will be the largest, the tallest building ever made in the entire world. In fact, I believe this will be to France like what the Great Pyramids are to Egypt. What a bold statement. And he started. And they also said, wait, what if if it's 1,000 feet tall? My, My house is Closer than 1,000 feet to the park, it'll fall on my house. I mean, nobody had seen something this tall before. And so it became, you know, a big question. And they also said, "Um, you only have two years, by the way, till this expo. Well, he decided to go for it. And so as he started, one of the things they had to do was build a structure in the ground for this to be fastened to. And one of the catches of the location that they said he had to build on was it was right by the river running through Paris, and the river had millions of years of buildup of sedimentary in the ground around the river, and so if they tried to strap it down into the ground, the ground was not reliable, and so the first thing you had to do is put these huge blocks of cement in the ground that they would fasten it to and They actually, on the site closest to the river, they had to drill like 75 feet down to finally hit limestone that they would connect those blocks to. So a lot of work going on down there. But then the next thing, and that's one of the biggest challenges of this tower, was that these legs, if you look at this, they're not straight up. And Eiffel actually did that for multiple reasons. One, it looks really cool. But two, it actually spread out the weight. It wasn't all being carried straight down. Some of it was straight down, some of it was horizontal. Okay, so that was going to be really helpful in holding the weight of this building. But the feet of the building, since they're tipped, they didn't build it all as one piece and then put it down. They started on this leg, this leg, this leg, and this leg. And so as they were building them, they had to have them separate till they got up and joined in the middle. And there was a really important part where when they all meet in the middle, they have to be perfect And exact. Because if one side was angled too too high, for example, just by a couple millimeters, by the time that inconsistency gets up to the top, it'll be over a foot. It'll be the leading tower of Paris. (laughs) That's what it'll be. And so they had to plan on that. And one of the things that Eiffel did was they had these these legs leaning because they they weren't touching, so they weren't holding each other up yet. So they were leaning on scaffolds as they were being built. And he said, We're going to make the angle a little bit too high, just centimeters too high on every leg and then between the scaffold and the leg we're gonna have a bag box of sand that it's on squishing and then when they got them all built and they were ready to get them level and fasten them they pulled the cork and sand slowly started coming out and they were able to adjust by millimeters the tilt until they got it perfect and it took over 5,000 pages of plans to build this. And one of the other big things that he did was, and I have a really high-tech example here, um, I have two papers and they're similar except one is folded and one is not. And you know this is just paper, it's not that big of a deal. But the the strength change of just folding a paper is, is true as well with metal. And so using flat panels and angled metal beams, they would fasten them together and create structures that were as strong as if they used solid stone. But they were much, much lighter, and that was a really big deal. And So they started erecting this, and after they got the bottom half, or it's not even the half, just the first part, it's actually one, two, three, once they got that done, that took a year to get to this point. And then the next year they had for the rest of it. And they were doing um, about 100 feet a month as they started to get toward the end. And they used rivets to connect all of these panels that were bent and flat. They used rivets, and basically you had a hole, in in each piece you were going to connect, there was a hole. And then you'd take this hot, glowing rivet, it's like a bolt, only there's no screw paths on it, and you put it through, and then you pound the other side with a cast, and it squashes it into a half circle. So on both sides, it's like sandwiched. And then when that rivet cools, it shrinks, and it, like, pulls it together even tighter. And they had rivets, but to use rivets, they had to have something that got them hot enough to actually be glowing. So they invented a portable rivet system where they could pull it up the tower. Because if you get them hot at the bottom, by the time you get them up at the top for the guys, they're cool. And then he also – they were taking too long. So Eiffel said, well, we're going to have a rivet place at the factory – pre-make a lot of these pieces and then we will sh- send them over to the tower pre-made. And that was kind of the beginning of pre-fabrication of some of the pieces. And they were able to speed up the process by quite a bit. So finally, they got it done early and the, the expo came in 1889 and they had used thousands of pieces um, a- around, I want to say, 80,000 pieces of iron and 2.5 million, or I'm sorry, not 2.5, yeah, 2. I'm trying to get my numbers here. 2.5 million rivets um, to get get those made. And so the the event happened, and it was amazing. And Eiffel himself took the flag of France and walked up the 1,792 steps with some government and press people, probably the ones who were the naysayers at the beginning, you know. <laughs> He had a little workout. The elevators weren't made yet, and so they went all the way to the top, and he put it on the top, and he said, France is the only country with a 1,000-foot flagpole. (laughs) And um, they had the expo. It was amazing. And one fun fact is Thomas Edison showed up at the expo to see it because he thought it sounded amazing, and Eiffel didn't know he was coming. And when France saw that Edison came, they were like... Look! (laughs) Yeah, man! Yes, of course! Okay, and Eiffel was at a spa, so he actually missed the first day that Edison was there, so he went over and the next day he took Edison up to, uh, turns out Eiffel had a private apartment on the top floor, pretty cool, and he had a piano there, and so he saw that there was a really famous pianist visiting as well, so he grabbed him and said, hey, will you come perform for Edison and I? So they, he took Edison up, and they had a, a dinner up there, and Edison gave him a f- one of his new phonographs that he had made. And if you go there now, they have a little window, if I understand it correctly, at the top that you can go look into that private apartment, and they have full-size wax figures of Eiffel, and Ed- they're pretty proud of it, and Edison sitting there talking. Um, so if you're doing a project... Just think, I want to do this good enough that Edison would want to come visit, <laughs> or Bill Eyre or Roger Billings. So <laughs> thank you.
0: All right. And now introducing Roger Billings.
3: Some people. That's that's really amazing. You
0: have people.
3: You know, I love the Eiffel Tower.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It is a, a beautiful, beautiful monument uh, to science and to France and Edison, of course. He inspired it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if, um, they actually made him make a commitment that after the World Expo was over, he would take it down. Because it was going to be so ugly, yeah. And so he actually agreed that okay, we'll take it down. But then after, people there now are so proud of it, yeah, yeah. so beautiful. It is an amazing feat, and you know, uh, making a tower like that is kind of like making something like a cellus. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It takes thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to create the system. And it it's still going on being created, and it's, it's really kind of amazing. Um, when I visited the Eiffel Tower, and of course I have, mm-hmm. yeah, but when I visited it, I, I needed to go up, and the elevator was working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I took the elevator. And, and as you go up to the different levels, the first level is really big. There's restaurants and everything on there. But the next level is much smaller. And the very tippy top is very, very small. And you actually take different elevator up to each level. And when you get up the top, they have these little telescopes. And you put a coin in, and you can look out and spy. It's, it's beautiful. And it's quite an accomplishment. And I think how proud he must be to have made that. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is. Those were my people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ones you, who made that I time. just really claim them. <laughs> So I brought something that I want to show you. Would this be a good time? Absolutely. Okay, it's a little briefcase. Can you see that? Uh-huh. It's got these little latches. It's really little. I don't know if we can see it.
0: That's a really.
3: The little latch opens there. Little latch opens here. It's just
0: tiny. And
3: you can see, feel how how th- thick it is.
0: That's not very, very thick. thick.
3: It's like half inch thick. Yeah, right. So, yes. let's just imagine that this briefcase represents. Your mind. Okay. Okay, and so inside of here is all the knowledge that you accumulate. So every time you learn something, you learn it, you put in this little briefcase, and you learn it, and put doesn't take very long. It's a very okay. mind. <laughs> yeah. So your knowledge, the power of knowledge that you have is what you have stored in here. And the problem is it's only that thick. Yeah. What if there's not enough room to store everything you want to know? Yeah, then you have to find some way to accentuate it. And I just like go ahead and open this briefcase and show you what I have in it. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yeah. You're watching sure. close? Okay.
0: Oh. Now, like that.
3: if you notice
0: <clears throat>
3: this ball
0: How'd you get that ball in there? Is bigger. Down bigger down
3: the- than the briefcase. And so the challenge is how do you get this ball to fit in there? <laughs> and that's exactly the challenge we have with a Because people think that the courses that we're putting inside your brain are bigger than your brain, mm-hmm. right? It <laughs> seems like it. And so you say, why are you doing that? It won't fit. Yeah. And the magic of a is to figure out how to make it fit. Now, I met a, an Acelo student a little bit earlier today. His, his name is Zion, and he spelled that for me. Yep. Zion is six years old. He's from California. Mm-hmm. Happened to be visiting today with his family, and uh, he's in the third grade. And he, he explained to me that, that he's smart, <laughs> and he is. Yeah. And he really enjoys Dr. John's STEM class. Mm-hmm. And he's got both the robots, and he's doing a lot of things. But it it was exciting to me to see how much knowledge he has gained. And he's six years old. I know. And he's at a third grade level. Uh, There are so many students that are reading at a third grade level at five and six years old. And that is a wonderful accomplishment. These students are going to get ahead in life because they're getting ahead in their learning. And the process of making a, a person learn faster, learn better, so they remember, is what we call ourselves the learning accelerator. And how do you accelerate the learning process? It's it's interesting that um, the amount of stuff that you need to learn is kind of fixed. I mean, it's all the I mean, knowledge is increasing. But in each of our courses, we have a curriculum and a thing that you're expected to learn. But how fast you learn it is not fixed. And so in Acellus, uh, we discovered some very interesting things. And a lot of what we discovered, we discovered by studying children, especially young children. Young children learn very, very fast. They learn to speak, they learn to walk, they learn all these different things. But in observing the way small children learn, we discovered that their brain wants to learn much faster than we're used to teaching. And I'm going I'm to try and experiment. I'm going to try and say something to you. And it's, it's so important that I'm going to say it very carefully. And I'm going to go very slowly so that nobody can't keep up with me. Okay? Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, I will now start to say the thing that I want you all to learn. Okay, here we go. The thing about education Am I going too fast?
0: No. (laughs) Is that
3: by then their brains have gone. (laughs) And it's true. The, The brain can learn so much faster. And we're learning that Feeding information and knowledge to the brain at a higher speed makes the brain happier. Mm -hmm. It helps the brain stay engaged. And we try to do short, powerful lessons. And then we kind of do a change of pace. We let people do problems, do drills or whatever. But we have much to learn about getting this knowledge into our brains and accelerating the learning. And I'm thrilled at the progress we've made to date, but we have only just begun. And I, I'm really excited about that. The learning accelerator. There is a, a, a method of learning that small children use. Uh, it seems like most of the things the small children learn isn't teacher-based. they they kind of are Mm self-taught. Small children learn how to speak, for example, not because they have wonderful teachers, they're kind of on their own, they may have parents and friends that are helping them, but they learn by something that I call the discovery method. They discover, for example, that this is a ball and that this little double circle shape on the ball is what people call an eight. And then pretty soon they find out that eight represents a value. These are all things they have to learn. And if they learn them in the discovery mode, something magical happens. When a piece of information comes towards a student Mm -hmm. through their eyes, their ears, their senses, and you're supposed to learn it. Mm -hmm. For example, I'd like to give you some, some baseball scores three to six, five to nine, 12 to two, and eight to one. (laughs) You know, if if you heard that on the radio and you know all the scores, but you don't have any idea who won. That's
0: true. (laughs) You
3: know, they don't mean anything unless they have a context. I have discovered in my own personal experience that when I have a place to put knowledge, when there's something that I realize that I want to know, and I go out and try and find it, that my mind grabs it better than if someone is just trying to make me learn something. In fact, I I think maybe it's my personality, but I resist learning. Why do I want to learn this again? I don't want to learn it unless I want to learn it. And if we can get students discovering knowledge, then we have mastered a wonderful breakthrough in teaching. Many of our best teachers have really mastered this area of being able to teach by inspiring in the students to discover knowledge. And I think that's something that uh, we're exploring now with the Cellus. We have a course called Discover English. It's a course that is targeting uh, students that have grown up with some other language and now they're learning English as a second language. And the challenge was there are so many different languages they might know. We didn't know which one to use to talk to them. And so we did it with this discovery method. And it's taken a little bit of effort to perfect it, but we've had some really wonderful results. I think there's an opportunity to do discovery learning in many, many other fields, especially in the sciences and even in math. And so I am off on this crazy project to advance the science of discovery learning. Mm-hmm. And you would perhaps be surprised I think
0: they would.
3: to know exactly how big I think that is and where it wants to go. So today I want to take you for a really wild imagination ride. Now, I, I can't show you pictures because there are no pictures of what I'm going to show you. And so if you're going to see it, you're going to have to be able to do your own imaginations. You're going to have to draw your own pictures. And I will give you the words and the concepts, but then you need to envision it. It would be fun if we had a, a memory or a, a thought printer so we could pitch, print out the picture of everybody's different idea. No, that what would be fun. <laughs> at that. But uh, I think you'll see this is kind of a wild vision. When Eiffel decided that he was gonna build that tower, it was so mind-boggling, so much bigger than anything that had ever been built or ever seen, people couldn't really believe that he could do it. And when you start looking at how tall that is, and all he had was the engineering tools and mathematics to be able to decide if it was possible. But he believed he could, and he did, and now it's one of the most famous monuments in the world. When I was in Brazil, I would go to a little shop called the Eiffel Tower, Torre because they made the best sweet rolls in all of Brazil. I mean, all over the world, this, this place is famous. So now I want to show you a vision. Now, at the end of, of this little adventure, I want you to judge how much, if any, of this crazy vision I'm going to tell you about will be realized. I mean, how many towers have people said, I'm going to build a tower that never happened? And what I'm talking about is pretty wild. And i just like you to decide whether or not you think this happened. And then, you know, like... Uh, Tobias was telling us, with the blessing of hindsight, we'll look back and see who was right. Okay? Okay. Is there anything you'd like to say before we get started?
0: I'm ready to go for the ride.
3: You're ready? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So here we go. Discovery learning. First of all, I want you to consider this, this notion or this premise. Is it true, as I believe it's true, that when a student is pulling knowledge in, discovering knowledge, that they can learn at a much accelerated pace to just normal teaching. Is that a true principle? Mm -hmm. And if so, how in the world do you do it? How do you set it up for this discovery learning? I've been to science museums around the world. I love science museums and you go in and you can a lot of interesting things and I get a lot of good ideas. But I have always been disappointed when I go to a science museum that it never really makes me feel like I'm empowered to do things like I want to. I think discovery, discovery learning would change museums. and Just think, what if you could go in and you could really learn something. So I'm envisioning a place that you could go where you would be able to experience discovery learning. And what do I call it? Of course, I call it a -a cellless world. Okay. now, years ago, I was contacted by one of the assistants from Walt Disney. And the assistant told me, it's not public yet, so you can't talk about this. I think I can now. (laughs) You can't talk about this, but Walt is getting ready to build a new Disneyland in Florida. So he's got Disneyland. Walt Disney has his own land in Anaheim. It's called Disneyland. Now he's going to build Disney World in Florida. And he said, in the middle of Disney World, there's going to be a place called Epcot Center. And Epcot Center is going to be a place where people can learn where they can see new technologies and it's gonna be a learning place. And then they asked me if I would build a small hydrogen village there so that everybody could learn about the advantages of hydrogen energy. And of course I was really thrilled and it, was a project that catapulted me forward in my hydrogen research because all of a sudden I had to figure out how it would all work how do you make the hydrogen how do you store it how do you utilize it and I ended up building the world's first hydrogen house so that I could test out these ideas we were going to put in Epcot Center and And we did, we built the world's first hydrogen house. Already had the first car, Mm -hmm. had the first bus, had a few firsts, but never built a whole house. When you start converting a house to run on hydrogen, there's some things you have to figure out. First of all, I had to figure out the source of the hydrogen, which I'd kind of learned to do from my vehicles. But then I had to convert a stove. Stove has these burners. And you turn on the gas, and it ignites, and you have a flame. Well, I got a stove, and I converted the burners so they would use hydrogen. I turned on the flame. I could hear it making a noise, but there was no fire. There was a little pilot light, but there was no fire. There was no flame. I put my hand on it, and it was hot. The hydrogen flame is invisible. It's not blue. It's not yellow. It's invisible. You can't see it. And I thought, oh, that might be dangerous. If people turn on a a hydrogen burner and there's no flame, and you think, whoa, it's not on, they could roast their fingers, which wouldn't be good. That's a problem. Another thing I did is I took a sample of the gas above the burner just to make sure that it wasn't making any pollution. You know, when you burn hydrogen, it only makes water vapor. No pollution, no carbon dioxide, no carbon monoxide, no unburned hydrocarbons, just water. Except in my hydrogen car, I found out it also made nitric oxide from heating up nitrogen and oxygen in air and turn them into this pollutant that's kind of bad. So I wanted to make sure there was none of that. So I pulled a sample, took it to the chemistry lab, and there was 1,000 parts per million of nitric oxide. That's terrible. That is dangerous. And so I thought, oh gee, you can't have this in a house because there's too much nitric oxide. I needed a solution. You know, the optimism curve, I started out very positive, <laughs> I built the burner, I tested.
0: it,
3: And then it was very discouraging. If you look in the United States patent office, you're gonna find a guy named me,
0: Roger Billings. With an <laughs>
3: invention uh-huh. to make a kitchen stove work without any pollution.
0: I didn't know that. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> and uh, you legal people will realize, and it's expired. It's been a while back. It only last 17 years. This was before that. But I had to get rid of that nitric oxide. And I had oh. to figure, if, if we're going to put these in everybody's homes... It's got to be affordable. It's got to be reliable. And it would be nice if it made it so you could see if there was a flame, too. And so I started the inventive process. I had to discover how to make this work. And I i have this little laboratory that I build in my brain, <laughs> which means I've tried a lot of experiments. I like doing them in my brain when my my homemade theoretical imagination laboratory says it'll work, then I try it. And if it doesn't work, I have to go fix my laboratory. So, and eventually, you get so that you can do more and more experience in your head and be more and more accurate. Well, I did a lot of experiments, and eventually, I came up with a really interesting idea. And it's interesting how almost all the bad news in science Sooner or later can be used to your advantage. My early hydrogen engines would backfire. Boom, boom, boom. That's why I had such a hard time getting the first lawnmower engine to run because it would backfire. Well, I discovered the reason it was backfiring is when the engine is drawing in the fuel during the intake stroke, that there was metal inside the engine that was warm from the last cycle and when you have iron, just plain old iron or steel that is hot, it's a catalyst that ignites hydrogen. So while the intake's still coming in and the valve is open, it'd catch on fire to burn out through the intake manifold and boom, and it would scare everybody away. So I had to work very hard to solve that problem in my engine. And so now I have a problem here. I can't see the flame. There's pollution. Pollution is caused when you heat nitrogen, which is 80% of air, and oxygen, which is almost 20% of air. When you heat those two gases, when you heat air up to a temperature above 2,400 degrees, they react and form this nitric oxide. In my engine, I got rid of nitric oxide by lowering the combustion temperature. And I did that by spraying little droplets of water in the cylinder. Can't do that on a stove. So I got this idea. If the hot iron ignites hydrogen like a catalyst, hmm, I went to the grocery store and I found a stainless steel scrubber. Have you seen those? Mm -hmm. They're there, there's just stainless steel scrubbers, and they're only like 50 cents. So I got a couple, I brought them home, and I stretched them over the top of the burner. My theory was when the stainless steel got warm, it would be like a catalyst to make the hydrogen burn when there wasn't a good mixture of air and oxygen with the hydrogen, so it would be cooler. And as it got hot, it would glow orange. So lo and behold, I turned the thing on, the fire ignited, and the stainless steel catalyst turned a bright, beautiful orange. (laughs) And we measured the pollution, and instead of a thousand parts per million, there was less than one part per million.
0: You're so smart.
3: And so I have a patent. (laughs) Now, I like to think about that as kind of the model for discovery learning. I discovered how to get rid of that pollution because I wanted to know and because I had some experience with the backfire where I learned that iron, when it's hot, is a catalyst for oxygen combustion. And lo and behold, it worked. I wonder if we could take that into a, an experience that would do these amazing things. So, you need to know a little bit of this history. And I'm, I'm telling you a lot of off-the-record stuff today. I, I won't admit or deny if anyone <laughs> ever asks me. This is, mm. But you see, years ago, someone decided that here in Missouri, where it's against a lot of gamble, that we have rivers. And if you go out in a boat on a river, you technically wouldn't be in Missouri. You'd be out on the river. And so they figured if you went out on a riverboat, you could have a casino. And that wouldn't be against Missouri law. So they did. They actually created casinos, gambling casinos that go up and down the rivers. And it was really funny because to get on the boat, you go to the... To the deck where you'd walk on, and you'd walk on the boat, and they had slot machines and everything, and nobody was gambling because we were still in Missouri. <laughs> and then when everybody got aboard, they pulled up the planks and they went floating out into the river, and everybody could start gambling because we weren't in Missouri anymore.
0: <laughs> okay.
3: Good thing, Good huh? Thing and know. <laughs> so that's how gambling started in Missouri. Well then Someone got a real good idea, and they said, you know, going out in those boats, that's a problem. What if we had the boat stay right here on the dock, and the river's going by, but we're still kind of in the river? And so then they decided they could gamble at the dock. And then a couple years later, someone said, well, what if we built a casino right on the bank of the river? And then what if we dug a little ditch so some of the water came around the casino? Wouldn't we still be in the river? And so they authorized that. And one of the companies that built a casino in Kansas City, Missouri, on the Missouri River, is a place called Sam's Club. Sam's Club from Nevada came and built a really nice casino. But they had to build it right on the river because unless you could get some water to come around the building, you can't be a casino. But right on the river, they had to have a place where the bank was steep enough so a flood wouldn't come in the casino. And the only place they could find was right by the railroad tracks. So they built this little casino, but you couldn't get to the casino because of the railroad tracks, so they built an escalator that went up over the railroad tracks to a big parking garage on the other side. And this casino was very successful, and then they sold out to another casino, and then this property was purchased by Cerner, which is a wonderful Kansas City-based mm-hmm. headquartered company, and they used it as a big training center, and now they're all finished using it as a training center, and so I thought that would be the perfect place for a Cellus world. And it is amazing, so just think about it. You park your car in this five-story garage, you get out you get on the escalator goes up over the train tracks do you like trains
0: i love trains
3: Trains are fun
0: they're fun and
3: you go over the yeah. train you can see them going underneath you and then when you come into a solace world you get on this big giant escalator into this town with buildings <laughs> literally <laughs> it's like main street that's so and nice. they're 41 foot tall, tall ceilings and you go in there, and there's all of these learning things to do. There's a STEM lab where you can come and do your robots. This is where students are going to be able to come and bring their program and program the giant robots really? and even dance with them.
0: Oh, fun. Right? That's fun. Dear.
3: But upstairs, there are these wonderful meeting rooms, and in each meeting room, I want to build... A discovery learning experience. And this is going to be especially helpful for students that are studying at home. Because when they come visiting Kansas City, they can come to Cellus World, and they can go in there and get some hands-on learning experience. All of the online stuff is amazing, and we're making it as real as we can. But every once in a while, you need to come, and you need to just grab it with your hands and do it. So the chemistry, the electronics. Uh, one of the discovery things that I really want to do is I want to let people learn electronics. Mm-hmm. And just think, what if you could come in there and actually learn how to build a radio? What if you could learn to solder? And you can just do it in mm-hmm. one day. You can and when you're all done, you have a little radio that you can take home with you. Only... My idea is bigger than that. This isn't a little tower. This is a (laughs) big one. What if when you turn the radio on, the radio station that you would get would be the homeschool radio network?
0: What is that?
3: That's exciting. It's a radio for people that are really interested in learning about homeschooling, for their parents to learn how to do it properly, for the students to be able to get reinforcement. Anyway, (laughs) Last week, we bought a radio station. I did. Yeah. <laughs> we
0: did. It's a yeah. Kansas City
3: radio station. Mm-hmm. For any of you that...
0: Loves Kansas City.
3: Yeah, it's <laughs> 1030 on the AM dial, mm-hmm. and it's KCWJ yep. radio station. It's a signal all over Kansas City. But that's, that's not going to do it because it only reaches Kansas City. And most of our Sola students don't live here. So if you get a radio and you make a radio in the discovery uh, lesson mm-hmm. and then you take it home to your out of Kansas City City, then you won't be able to get our radio station. That would not be good. But the radios we're going to build, wherever you take it, you turn it on and it picks up the radio station by Wi-Fi.
0: That's a so brilliant you still idea.
3: Do. So still do My idea is you build this radio, you take it home, and now you've got a homeschool radio. And you can listen to the programming, the shows. For example, planning a talk show for Power Homeschool so those parents can get in and help each other and call in and talk about it. But I want to have a special button on the radio, and I'm serious about this, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. a student can turn it. And if you happen to be a little bit younger, and you're getting ready to turn in for the night, you can turn it on nighttime stories.
0: Oh, how
3: fun. Sell us nighttime stories. And I'm thinking of something like Tobler the bear.
0: Yes, yes.
3: And his little friend Beak the -hmm. chicken. You know, uh, Tobler (laughs) stories are pretty wild. I knew the guy that created Tobler.
0: <laughs> you knew him? Then yeah, what happened?
3: knew him personally.
0: Uh-huh. And he's, then what happened? He's
3: the guy that hides in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Does he look a lot like you? I,
3: I don't want... I, I can't tell you more than that right oh. now. <laughs> but I got in a lot of trouble for creating Tobler. And I I, I needed Tobler. He's this little bear, this lovable little bear. And I, I created him with the idea in mind that a student, when they heard a Tobler story, they would kind of see the world like through mm-hmm. Tobler's eyes. And it would be a way to be able to teach them about things they maybe shouldn't and should not do mm-hmm. and inspire them a lot of way. And then he had a friend that wasn't always the best and his name's Beak and he's this chicken with really long legs. Some of you have seen Tobler in some of our reading classes, et cetera. But uh, Beak's always getting in trouble.
0: Kind of naughty little bird.
3: And then they have one other special friend, mm-hmm. and this is a little pig. And when I originally named her, I named her Smelly Lips. And I had a lot of people complain about that, so I had to go back and change it to Sweetie Lips, okay? But these characters actually have experiences and adventures that are pretty intense, Because guess what, life's intense. And every one of these lessons was intended to convey a story to help people cope with some of the problems that they get into their lives. And I would tell these stories to uh, my grandkids. I have some rowdy grandkids. And I would test a story. When I had a new story, okay, I'm gonna tell them. I would test it to see if it was up to snuff by whether my granddaughters go, (gasps) (laughs) And if they did that, then I had a good story, because it's got to be one that they re listen to. Well, the Tobler stories have kind of caught on in our family, and I was really surprised one day when I went to visit the grandkids, and they'd gone to bed, but I could hear the Tobler story going on, and they were playing it on a little tape. And so now, uh, we, we probably have, what, 30 Tobler stories more than 30. How many do we have? Ninety. Or Ninety. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably more than anything else I've ever done going to get me in more trouble yeah. than anything you can imagine. But these stories really, I believe, especially some of my older kids have told me, they've helped them realize the importance of caring about other people and, and you know, just yeah. simple stories of, of how to succeed in life and to motivate. So I uh, thought it'd be fun if they could flip over and they could get these bedtime stories and other things. But can you imagine the pleasure that comes from having a radio that you built? It's and the thing that bothers me is you get these kits and things and they show you step-by-step step how to build it and you build it and you have no idea how it works. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's neat. I think you should understand how it works. And then it starts to be really wonderful. And that's where this discovery learning kicks in. And I really want to build this center, Acellus World. And if this tower isn't tall enough yet for you, it has another chapter. Then I want to take this Acellus World thing with its STEM labs and all the learning things that we have. This can be a fun place to go. And I want to make a mini Acellus world, I call it an Acellus Learning Center, in 500 cities all across America. Wow. So that everybody can go be part of the hands-on learning experience. And uh, this is part of the dream, the vision I have of what Acellus could be. And then students, wherever they live, won't be too far away, and they come into an Acellus Learning Center, and they could actually get their hands on and and do these different projects that are so important. What do you think?
0: I kind of feel like Moya when Bill Lear told her to sit there in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And he was going to take her on that ride in his airplane, which wasn't built yet. It was only an idea.
3: It was four (laughs) kitchen chairs. (laughs) Yeah. No wings.
0: That means it's going to happen. Yeah. That's what it feels like right now. Well... Me and the students. You <laughs> the know, students I. Um,
3: I really think the radio network is going to happen. I've been playing this radio network for a long time, mm-hmm. and I think we really need it. It's the way we get the word out. It's the way that we share these ideas. We need to learn how to make education the very best it can, and, and we need to do that by sharing ideas. And uh, I was privileged to work in radio in college, and... And I just, I think it's a powerful, powerful medium. And people are so busy, but sometimes while you're driving to work, is a perfect time to be able to listen to a a discussion program about how to do learning. So I would like to have the Homeschool Radio Network become the place, and I plan to put it in 100 cities, but the place where you go to learn oh. about homeschooling and how to do it right, things to watch out for, the pitfalls, the dangers. Uh, when you're raising children, uh, their education is, is so important, it, yeah. it should be called sacred. And if there's anything that you want to make sure you do right, it's to make sure your children get a good, appropriate education. And there are some reasons why more and more people are feeling like they want or they need to do this at home and I'll just just so you see my big picture how I see it working the the schools in America have wonderful teachers and one of the things I want to do is I want to be able to bring these wonderful teachers to help the students that are studying at home so that if you are being homeschooled and you need a specialty teacher, someone that knows special stuff, that we can make them available to you. And uh, I call that cyber school. A cyber school to me is a homeschool where you utilize the great teachers at our wonderful public schools and, and we do that in every state. And we've been trying this out for a couple years in the state of Wyoming and it's working out really well. Uh, education, our world is really changing with things like COVID, it's, it's been different than anyone expected and a lot of students have been pulled out of school and I just wanna make sure that everyone has access to the most amazing education possible. So we just talked about a huge vision, huge vision. But it's a vision that I think that the wonderful team here at sell us and the nationwide team helping to sell us outside of Kansas City, and all the parents and the students can pull together. Your education is crucial to your success in your lives. Study, 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 but, but become passionate about it. You've got to want it. You've got to pull it in, and then learning will accelerate. And, No one can even imagine how much you can do. Thank you. you.